Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Cross the Brazos and Waco. Fight hard and I'll make it by dawn. Cross the Brazos and Waco. Welcome to the Waco History Podcast. I'm Randy Lane, great-grandson of Waco architect Roy E. Lane. Over a hundred years ago, he designed the Alico Building, Hippodrome, and other well-known landmarks. My co-host, Dr. Stephen Sloan of Baylor's Oral History Institute, is helping me learn Waco's known and unknown stories. On this episode, The Reservation, Waco's legal red light district. Holy mackerel. I didn't say holy mackerel, but (laughs) I couldn't believe it. Yes, Waco, a town known for its colleges and churches, was the second city in the United States to have a legal red light district. Stephen and I sit down with reservation expert Amy Balderak to learn how madams and prostitutes lived in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Each room had a bell system. What I conjectured was when a customer would ring a bell, it allowed for something like a more discreet exchange of sorts. And now, come with us on a journey into Waco's past. Cross the Brazos and Waco, ride hard and I'll make it by dawn. Welcome back to the Waco History Podcast. This is Randy. I'm with Stephen again. And Stephen, can you please introduce today's guest? Yeah, Randy. We have Amy Balderak, who we brought in. She is an expert on an area of town that maybe the lights in Waco don't want us to really talk about. Mm. Uh, But part of Waco's seedy history. We promised at the beginning of this podcast that we would do warts and all. Yeah. And so this is one of the warts episodes. And so Amy's come in because she's done extensive research on an area of town called the reservation. And I'll leave it to Amy to tell us a little bit more about what that was. Well, what's your background, Amy, just so we get a sense for who you are? First of all, I'm glad I'm part of the warts part of the history. (laughs) But I I went to Baylor, got my master's degree uh, back in 2005, and went on and got another master's at Rice University. Originally, I got my history degree at Westminster College. While I was a student at Westminster, I started to establish a bit of an affinity toward individuals that were on the outskirts of history. I did a small project on prostitution during the Civil War. When I arrived at Baylor in the fall of 2003, I went to the Texas collection and the librarian, Michael Toon, sat down with me and we were trying to figure out what sort of thesis might work for for my time there at Baylor and had told him about my nascent interest back in my undergrad days for prostitution. And I kind of, I said it a a bit tongue in cheek because I I realized where I was. I was right in the center of Baylor University's campus. (laughs) And and he looked at me and said, you know, Waco had a really large red light district back in the day. And uh, there's already been a thesis uh, that has been completed here. And that was back in the nineties. But I I really think that there's more to tell in the story. Hmm. And so I ended up digging around in finding a little bit more to the story that, you know, some people didn't 
think I would be able to find and I didn't think I would be able to find, but I somehow was able to discover at least some part of the social aspects of what it was like to live in the reservation. And the reservation was Waco's red light district. At the time in the late 1800s, cities and towns around the U.S. had sort of taken a page from New Orleans Storyville and had attempted to segregate prostitutes into a specific area within the city. Hmm. And as the decade from about 1889 through 1910, in those decades, Waco's red light district went from First Street over, it was pretty close to the suspension bridge, and it gradually shrunk backward toward where that Vietnam Memorial would be currently here or down in Waco. And the reservation, because it, it shrunk from First Street back to Second Street, North Second Street, and pretty much at the crossroads with Washington, it was at the crossroads between uh, North Second Street and Washington. And as that time period progressed, you know, the prostitutes were continually pushed backward by other businesses coming in to take the place of, of those residents or business locations where the prostitutes had plied their trade a little bit closer to the main square of town. But anyone driving through Waco would would see that North 2nd Street or what was North 2nd Street and Washington was quite close to the center of the the city anyway so a lot of my thesis really was dependent upon the the economic importance that prostitutes and their trade had on the city of Waco and that by the time that Camp MacArthur came in in, in 1917 it had kind of it it was a far more lucrative opportunity for the city and at that point the red light district pretty much ceased to exist formally. And, and by 1919, the area, what was the reservation, was primarily populated with Hispanic immigrants. That's sort of what became of, of the red light district there in Waco. So kind of firstly, what I want to know, why is it called the reservation? Well, I, I think it's primarily called that because it's an area reserved for the selling of sex. <laughs> and maybe at that point in time during that era throughout the the country, I mean, reservation in itself, when you hear that term, it's, it reminds you of Indian reservations. It was also called Two Street, largely because it was most of the brothels were on North 2nd Street. How does a place like this come into being? Were there some entrepreneurs that said, hey, we should start this area of town where people can come and do this? Well, I think it's just a sort of a natural progression of things in a way. At the time, the late 19th century, Waco had a thriving cotton business as well as at that point in time you have the suspension bridge that the suspension bridge was largely to transport cattle across the brazos river on the chisholm trail and so if you think about it right over by the suspension bridge down by the river where they're you know transporting cotton down river and what have you you have just an intersection of old south New West, I don't want to call it all Old West at that time frame, but <laughs> you have the intersection of two separate economies and 
like any boomtown, Waco becomes sort of this magnet for all sorts of individuals coming in, hoping to gain some sort of economic advantage. And and it's pretty commonplace in circles of prostitution historians that, you know, a boom town develops in the West. And, you know, the first women who come along are usually the the soil doves, also a term used for prostitutes, and they're there to garner some sort of economic advantage. It's very important to note that at, at the time that the reservation or Two Street became sort of a sort of a very large draw for prostitutes, is that Waco was in fact one of the major cities in Texas, pretty far up there as far as population goes. And in fact, by the turn of the 20th century, it was probably, I don't know, what would you say, Stephen, like within the top? It's definitely in the top 10. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, I think I've seen estimates around seventh or sixth in population. It had a big population relative to the rest of the state. So I'm thinking similar to a military base or something like that, you have a lot of men that are coming through and they have certain things they want to do. And that's that leads to people saying, OK, how can we make money off of this? I know from Stephen, I, I didn't know much about the, uh, the Chisholm Trail and about the uh, suspension bridge and how that's how a lot of cattle came through. And so all mm-hmm. those people are just coming through. Maybe they're stopping in Waco for the night. They're wondering what they can do. And, and that's something that pops up on the list. And then also the cotton trade, I guess, also brought a lot of people in that maybe were in and out of town. And so I'm guessing it's a, a lot about the, the transient nature of the people coming in and out of a boom town. It's funny that you should say that about the transient nature just of the people themselves within the, you know, coming and going in the in the boomtown era. But the movement of the prostitutes is also very transient. And that's why it's very difficult as a historian to pin down like the specifics of how does a prostitute live during that era? What sort of things does a prostitute become involved with? Because as I found in my in my own research, there were plenty of people coming in and out from other southern states. One case showed that a prostitute was in Waco, and then within a year, she was in Houston. And they just, they, they traveled around a lot, and a lot of them weren't literate as well. So what we have left to study on, on prostitutes during that era is, is very lacking as far as firsthand accounts go. Most of the firsthand accounts come from progressive reformers and whatnot, but I found that you can also utilize other methods to, to find out more about how prostitutes live. Like how? I discovered that I could use arrest records as well as some of the civil court cases at the county level to tell a bit of the story regarding the women who who lived in Two Street. And I know that one of them is particularly famous, and I was able to trace quite a lot of her career through the arrest records and the civil court records of Waco. And that woman was Molly Adams. Tell me about Molly Adams and what her life was like. So Molly Adams, I found in a, in a census in 1900 that she was born in 1869 in Ohio. It's not very clear as to where that is, where it was in Ohio that she was born. She actually was applying her trade, if you will, in Waco by 1886. Uh, another methodology that I used was the city directories and and it was fairly easy to find uh, who lived on more 
second street because they were categorized by the streets in which the the people lived instead of just alphabetically. So I was able to look at the intersection of North 2nd Street in Washington or at the time that she really started out, which was in 1886, she was living, I believe, on uh, 1st Street in, in the square. So, so Molly Adams, she started out in 1886, at least that's the earliest record I could find of her living in Waco. And at that time, she was about 17 years old. She first lived at, at 130 Bridge Street, and that was between 1st Street and the square. By 1890, she was actually employed by a madam called Stella Nolan. And Stella lived at 116 North 1st Street near the Brazos River. I looked at the body register that existed between 1889 and 1895. And I sort of traced what sort of uh, size house um, Molly had throughout the time frame. So looking at the body register, which was available um, which is a real thing, Randy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the body register when, is a real thing. Yeah. When you go into the Texas collection and, and you crack open the, the body register and you actually see, you know, terms like living in brothel and you see that someone is paying $2.50 to operate as a prostitute in Waco during that time frame. If you're a madam, you're paying $3.15 uh, wow. for each room that you're operating. They keep good records. And yeah, and it, 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 this was a monthly thing for, you know, over the period between 1888, 1889, and uh, through 1895. Molly starts out in 18... 18- 90 at Stella Nolan and at the time of at that time Stella had a, a nine room brothel so when people look back you know and, and think of of prostitution in Waco Molly Adams is synonymous with with the prostitution there but Stella Nolan was actually quite a bit more successful in terms of size of of brothel than than Molly ever hit. Stella was actually around until the reservation closed in 1916, but Molly Adams initially got her start working as a prostitute. Four years after she started as a prostitute in Waco, Molly got her start with Stella Nolan. And I'm sure as Waco's reigning madam at the time, Stella Nolan probably taught Molly a few things about how to run a successful business. By 1891, Molly was actually operating her own brothel with three rooms, and she's in the body register as not just a prostitute, but also as a madam. If you think about that, she so she's going from 1890 as a, just a prostitute at the more famous madam's house, Stella Nolan in Waco, to within a year operating her own brothel. Granted, it was just three years, but she's sort of making a bit of a rise as far as getting through the ranks of, of madams in Waco. And, and about two years later, she even doubles the size of, of her house by paying for a seven-room brothel. Stella Nolan remains pretty consistent as to how many rooms that she ran. There was a few years there where Stella, she either increased the size of her brothel by a few rooms, or she may have had another house that was operating as well. So I would say that 
uh, as far as the, the amount of rooms operating in the brothels, Stella Nolan was overall the most successful at her pinnacle of having about 12 rooms, but and as far as longevity as well, but Molly was also more infamous than, than Stella Nolan was. Well, let's zoom out a little bit. So if I'm just coming into Waco, it's about the time when Two Streets and its heyday. What does it look like when I walk down the street? What are the houses like? Kind of paint the picture for me if you can. So you're walking down Two Street and, and you're it's basically you're starting over by what today's convention center area would be mm-hmm. and you just within that vicinity you're you're walking and you're just seeing a, a, probably a lot of houses i mean there's really not a lot of photographic evidence of two street or the reservation the only thing that we really have to look at are the sandborn maps they were created by like insurance companies to, in the event that a fire might occur or what have you, then, you know, they would know the layout of where and what a location was for a house. The only house that we actually have a picture of is Molly Adams's house. And that was the one that was on 408 North 2nd Street when she passed away in 1940. And from the outside, it, it looks like a very nondescript just normal house. And by that time, she was 81 in 1940. So clearly she's not still plying her trade <laughs> by that time. But I imagine it, it was a combination of businesses, up and coming businesses and houses. And that's what the majority of cases that I came across in the civil court records, in the county court records were. I mean, these were houses. They weren't apartments. They, they weren't anything of that nature, because when I came across cases where landlords would sue the prostitutes to get a certain amount of rent back, you know, it was always, you know, mentioning about a house, you know, house of ill repute or what have you. But but at the same time, I mean, if you look at the, the plans of Molly Adams's house in 1910, which the firm that did the architectural plans for her house was Scott and Pearson, and that actually was the same firm that did the architecture for downtown's First Baptist Church. It was quite a very unique and colossal homage to Christianity. And I saw the connection and I it just slapped me in the face one day and I just thought, holy mackerel. I didn't say holy mackerel, but <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I could not believe that the same firm that designed Molly Adams's house was the same firm that did the architecture plans for the First Baptist Church. How schizophrenic of, a, of an existence can you get in a, in a town at that time frame? Waco has that religious aspect to it, but it's also got this seedier underlying history. Randy is a descendant of Roy Lane, and so that that's one of his interests in this podcast. <laughs> and of course, Milton Scott is who Amy is talking about, mm-hmm. who was Waco's other famous architect, the early mm-hmm. part of the 20th century. So it's quite interesting, and I'm, I'm sure that there, you know, there were plenty of people at that time frame that were benefiting from the economics of prostitution. And I'm not just talking about the madams who were like Molly Adams, who were increasing their room sizes and their brothel sizes. I'm talking about the actual landowners of these houses where, you know, it was very rare for a madam to actually own her own house. Molly Adams was a a pretty big exception. 
a lot of these women would rent from the quote, more respectable men in Waco. And so I came across a lot of cases in the civil court that involved, you know, rent disputes between individuals who owned the homes that they were operating the brothel in and the madams. And so uh, they were actually paying exorbitant rates to operate the brothels in in Waco. When I did my study in 2005, the amount that I found that a madam was paying one of these landowners for her rent was the equivalent of money in 2005 is about $2,200. And that's a lot of money even for today. And if you're thinking that this is in the area that's considered the squalor, the cesspool, the moral delinquents, that's a whole lot of money for that sort of real estate. And Molly Adams, she actually owned two houses and she she rented out to her other house to another individual. And I came across a dispute between two of them. And as in any case in the court system, the jury or the judge always favored Molly Adams. For whatever reason, she just always came out on top on on all of the cases that I came across. So was this kind of a, a normal situation where the men owning the houses, then the madams were kind of like the middle managers because they were renting from the, the people that owned the house and then they were managing the day-to-day trade, as it were? Yes, that's correct. So the madams themselves, with the exception of Molly Walker and Stella. Molly Adams. Molly Adams, I'm sorry. <laughs> and, and Stella... Nolan. They both owned their properties, but that was the exception and not the rule in that area for the most part? Yeah, pretty much. A woman either died by her late 20s, moved up the ladder of command and became a madam, or ended up wallowing in in a a, a pitiful existence in uh, the outskirts of the red light district and in a a one-room shanty, which, you know, were referred to as cribs. They didn't have a lot of other options Hmm. as far as where to go and what to do. And the fact that Molly started at age 17 and lived till the ripe age of 81, that's testament probably to her business skills more so than anything. And I don't know for whatever reason, maybe it was because of the general transient nature of the prostitutes coming and going and some of them like molly and and, uh, stella decide to put down roots and so therefore you know you have these transient women who are most likely not capable of staying in one place and being able to rent and be that the madam or the next step up from just a prostitute. I think also the challenges of keeping it legal. So if you would go in one of the girls' rooms, you would see two current licenses there that their health is good, that they the city doctor has inspected them and they have good health, and also that they've paid their license to operate there. <laughs> and they had to pay that quarterly, I think. Isn't that right, Amy? They had right. to go down and pay it quarterly. Right. And so this wasn't something that was like hidden because they had to have that out there for legal reasons. So did everyone just kind of know this street was there and that's what was going on and they just kind of turned the other way or were they just kind of like, well, that's just kind of how it is? Well, I think you just answered. <laughs> I think it was a, a bit of a little bit of both. It was one they for some reason they believed it back in that time frame, the general the human nature of of young men wanting to rabble rouse and, you know, there's Baylor University right there and whatnot. But 
everyone really knew that it was there. Not all people in the, the respectable circles would have ever accepted it as such. It was probably seen more as a necessary evil. Well, let's let's go down and, you know, take care of our girls in Two Street or what have you, because I know there are narratives where prostitutes go, have to go into the shops in Waco in the after hours uh, when everyone's gone and they're not wandering outside of Two Street to socialize and and participate in other aspects of the Waco society. They're certainly not showing up at the Cotton Palace ready to intermingle with the rest of that area. But this is prospering at the same time as the height of the progressive era. A lot of progressive ministers who are speaking out against the vices within their cities, alcohol, the sex trade, are sort of their their big platforms. Whereas they might voice concern locally, like the average Joe might be concerned that, you know, there's a red light district down the street. What do you think, Stephen? As I was thinking about this week, as we were going to record this episode, I was in Canada last week and they legalized marijuana mm-hmm. this week. And I think this discussion that we have about vice and the place of vice in a community, the idea of regulating it and taxing it or allowing it to go on as an illegal trade. And also who considers it a vice? Yeah. Who defines what, you know, how detrimental it is and also how do we control it? Mm -hmm. And is it better for, in this case, the city to control it? And as Amy will attest, they're also making money off of this. Right. At the same time, I think if Two Street is in one of the worst areas of town that would regularly flood anytime the Brazos Mm -hmm. would come up, but they're paying a lot of money into the city's coffers during Mm. this period. And actually, there was a a minister named J.T. Upchurch. He originally started out uh, with a a mission for fallen women in Waco and eventually moves to Dallas. But he, he wrote something called Traps for Girls and Those Who Set Them in Address to Men Only. And this was in 1908. And, you know, there is still a lot of concern regarding even if you're regulating this so-called vice when it comes to the economics of it even he sees it back in 1908 as something that waco has embraced either informally formally or whatever as an economic means and you know i'm just going to quote him she being waco so she wants money to build sidewalks from the, from the slums to her churches and is going to have it if she has to prostitute her daughters to get it. Hmm. A lot of what Upchurch is saying is really the, the foundation of prostitution in Waco. And he recognizes that back in 1908. And I'm sure that there were other people who were benefiting from it. You know, they're, they're arresting these, you know, once the register ends in 1895, they start to arrest these women on a bi or tri-monthly basis, especially in the early 1900s. You know, they're getting fees and fines. And, you know, one day they, you know, really cleared house and made the, the county made about $80,000 in today's money from just one day of gathering up these women in two street and arresting them for vagrancy, which was also a euphemism for prostitution back in that time frame. Hmm. So if you think about it, that's a lot of money in one day for 
a city, it becomes it becomes part of their economy. It's right next to you know a brickyard. It's near the courthouse down in the square. I mean, it's right there where people are doing business. By the time World War One rolls around, you know, they're sort of fighting to keep it, but then the Secretary of War says, well, if you want this camp, MacArthur, you're going to get rid of this red light district because mm. the, the biggest concern for soldiers back then, aside from being shot in battle, was contracting venereal disease. You know, they still linger around in the, in the reservation during that time frame, uh, during the first year or so, but definitely by 1919, and that's already, the war's coming to an end anyway, but they've cleared out, of the prostitutes have primarily cleared out of Two Street and within the early 20s, by the early 20s, like I said, the city directory show that the majority of residents in that area are Mexican immigrants or Mexican-Americans. So, you know, becomes like they don't want to stop this trade, the sex trade until it becomes more lucrative to have this camp near them. So I, I went back and looked at 1877 Waco. This is kind of interesting to know kind of the, the pre-years. Mm-hmm. We don't We don't know when the first prostitute gets to Waco, but I'm sure it's soon after the original wagon train shows up right. in, in 1849. Right. But in 1877, there were 13 churches, 15 saloons, 30 law partnerships, 17 doctors, and 19 prostitutes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I was kind of thinking kind of the way it probably works. You know, Waco starts. It's a boom town. Nobody really, there's no laws because nobody's really written them yet. And so that's something that comes into town because that's what people are after, you know, the supply and demand. Well, there is in the town charter, and this is interesting, but I know in the Waco town charter, it's suppress and regulate, not just suppress. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So it, it actually offered a little loophole where other cities that are trying to create these vice districts have some legal trouble that Waco doesn't have because it had that language in, in the town charter. Hmm. I'm trying to think exactly what they would have called it. I don't know if it's body activity or body houses. <laughs> body houses, probably. Body houses. So right. instead of just saying suppress body houses, it said suppress and regulate. As most laws are, they leave a lot open to interpretation. I think Waco is an excellent case of that regarding leaving a loophole open for interpretation so that it enables them to still do what the local area, the individuals within Waco proper really want to do as opposed to listening to a federal system or federal laws or state laws or what have you. And and I think that you're right with that. I think the, the loophole was, was definitely something that enabled them to let this sort of thing coexist with the, the 13 churches. And I, I think Waco had the second regulated vice district in the United States. Wow. It wasn't the largest. Can you guess what the first, you have 50 guesses. Can 50. you guess? No. <laughs> Omaha, Nebraska. Oh. Omaha, Nebraska was the first regulated vice district. Interesting. Yeah. I, w- I wouldn't have got there even if you yeah, gave me 50 I guesses. That's why, that's why I cut you short. <laughs> I was going to say New Orleans or something like that. So I'm assuming like this comes in here. They're not really sure what to do with it. So they say, well, let's just regulate it, put some rules on it. And then as the city grows and maybe those number of churches climb even higher, then the public outrage comes and people are like, well, we need to get rid of it. And the, you know, the people that are making money from it are like, well, 
let's just kind of look the other way, if you don't mind. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you have the architect of the First Baptist Church designing the <laughs> the more infamous Madam's house just down the street. So it makes a lot of sense. And a lot of times those individuals who own the, the houses where they were operating the brothels were in fact upstanding individuals, business owners, those who weren't owners of the homes and what have you. I came across individuals who rented items to them and, you know, well-known individuals within the Waco community. And, and you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's on the one side, you have individuals like JT Upchurch, who's up in Dallas and saying, oh, we need to get rid of these. By the way, Waco is paving its streets with its daughter's sexual activities in the shadow of Baylor University. And then you have the other individuals who just kind of want to, you know, say, hey, let's just let's just leave it as it is. It's a necessary evil. And JT Uptip Church was actually also he he does mention Baylor in his in his little rants regarding the prostitution in Waco. And I have I have another quote of his and he says in the same publication in 1908, he says, To my mind, the most revoltingly dishonorable part of her brutish proceedings is the pretended, quote, examination business. Now, says Waco to the Adran and Baylor students and other young men of the city, come on, boys, visit my harlots. Have a good time, and I promise to protect you from being caught by contracting any contagious disease. And that's talking so, about like the fact that it's regulated so that they're supposedly healthy and you're not going to contract diseases, right. supposedly. Yeah, and it, it's the system that still exists today in, in places like Amsterdam where, you know, the, the belief of regular examinations, although I'm, I, I'm pretty certain that modern medicine is a little more accurate as to yeah. what someone has as opposed to back in the, the 1890s or 1908 when he writes that. But it's, it's just very clear that he's stating this is kind of BS, you know, he's and it's kind of, you know, it's interesting that that here's this person who, you know, this minister who really is on point with two very important things. One, the economics, the importance of economics that prostitution has for Waco. But two, that even though they're having these make-believe examinations and on a quarterly basis, it's still not kosher. It's there, there's something else going on there that's not keeping people from contracting venereal disease. Mm -hmm. Something that was really interesting to me, and we kind of started this on another podcast, was that for tax purposes and whatnot, they would have different occupations labeled for what they than what they actually did. Did you find anything interesting about that? The census materials that I encountered, the only person who registered as a prostitute in 1870 was an individual named Margaret Berger. But she did live with another woman who, you know, was registered as a blacksmith. And I'm, I'm just <laughs> sort of curious how, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not, no, no offense to my gender, but uh, I'm not sure how many female blacksmiths operated back in, in, the, in the 1870 <laughs> era in Waco, Texas. But aside from that, it was pretty upfront in the census materials as to what their trade was. 1880, uh, they were listed as, a pros as prostitutes. There's always a chance that I may have overlooked maybe individuals who were listed as actresses or dancers or what have you. Yeah, that's what I was but hearing. 
the dance hall girls and lots of um, actresses in Waco. It must be a booming film industry or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really clear. So the, the reservations formalized in 1889. And so it's really clear after that, there are no fines for being a prostitute. You know, there's not okay. a fine for being a prostitute. So it would be different on those early records than it would be from, uh. from 89 to 1917. I'm also like envisioning when you think about red light districts, you think of like Amsterdam, you mentioned with like neon lights and, and women outside tr asking you to come in. Is that what it was like at all on Two Street? I, I actually came across a, a couple of oral histories of individuals who had spoken about the red light district there. And there was never really anything that I came across that showed some sort of like in New Orleans, what we see like a nascent jazz period or, you know, like, a, you know, the beginnings of some sort of jazzy neon sort of thing. I mean, I don't know. I never came across anything that said, oh, this this area is so rowdy or, oh, I can't, you know, it's it's so loud. And, you know, and, 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 and maybe that's maybe there were noise complaints. Maybe to my knowledge, it was just it wasn't sort of like that it didn't have that same flair that a place like new orleans would have had or hmm. or what have you around that time frame so like people would have known that it's there but you still had to know that it was there would women walk up to you as you're walking down the street and be like hey you look lonely or something like that or <laughs> would you have to just know and like knock on the door the right way and then they'd know to let you in or something i'm really not sure the only other story i came across where another person there was a another oral history where a, a woman she was uh, at the time dating her her husband and back in the buggy days and and I guess a storm hit where they were and they went into sort of a stable and uh, where there were you know hired hacks and and whatnot and and she said her her boyfriend at the time hid hid her in the uh, the carriage and she said she could hear this was on a Sunday and she could hear the owner of the stable calling out for you know hired carriages you know take so and so to Kate Cleveland's place take so and so to Molly Adams's place so she indicated like they never would have done that had had they known that she was in the carriage. But I mm. think that it's just not very clear as to how that sort of thing operated within Waco. Like, like you said, was there a knock? Was there this? But what I do have though is the architectural firm that did the the plans for Molly Adams's house in 1910. It kind of reveals a little bit about the sort of manner in which they might may have came to the to the brothel and okay. as part of the the high tech aspects of her house and i have to say first and foremost that molly adams was actually one of the first or second people within the city of waco to have a telephone installed in her house mm. um, that's how well she was doing at the time but you know she has indoor this is in 1910 and so the plan shows that she is having indoor plumbing installed, complete with additional toiletry services for men and electrical wiring. But the curious thing, as you know, I came across was that each room had a bell system. What I conjectured was the reason for this, this bell system was when a customer would ring a bell for a specific room, 
it allowed for something like a more discreet exchange of sorts. There is a bell system going to individual rooms, so it's unclear whether or not that bell system is within the house itself or if it's outside the house where they're ringing the bell specifically for a specific room, but it's really unclear as to what's available in, in, in what was available to me in 2005 as to how that sort of aspect was operating for the the bordellos Mm -hmm. i'm gonna go like stereotypical here so like when i'm thinking of like bordellos and stuff i think of like old west saloons you know there's like a bar downstairs where people are drinking and then they go upstairs with the girl was there any drinking involved in these houses or were the houses for what the houses were for Well, actually, there was a lot of drinking in the house and in the houses. The early 20th century, that actually became quite an issue with the officials in Waco. And and uh, I, I found a lot of individuals being arrested, uh, a lot of madams being arrested for selling liquor in a in a body house. And mm. so it really comes to a head, you know, sometime in like around 1910 after the Mann Act is passed, but also in that time frame in the early teens where they're being arrested quite often for selling alcohol in their brothel. And that that also, you know, it's it's sort of you know, this isn't something that I spe- I found specific to Waco, but, you know, alcohol also was a very large profit for a madam in, in a brothel. And mm. so the, the ultimate goal was, you know, try to get the, the customer very drunk and, you know, buying a lot of expensive alcohol. And, and that was an additional bit of income for them. So, mm-hmm. so I didn't think about it, but was there a time when alcohol was illegal, but prostitution was legal? Uh, there is a time in there where uh, liquor's outlawed, but it's not strictly enforced. Okay. I've watched a lot of uh, Boardwalk Empire, so that's my <laughs> historical <laughs> reference. Yeah, Nucky Thompson is later. Than this. <laughs> so you kind of talked about this earlier, but I, I'm kind of interested. The women of Two Street would not be seen in other parts of town. Was it like a shameful thing or was it like a, a control thing that the madam said you have to stay in this area and you can only go to these establishments? It could have been a little bit of both. And I know I keep answering your questions like that, (laughs) you know, one way or the other could be on one hand. Yes. As far as respectability goes, prostitutes weren't venturing out too much. And you have to consider, too, as my one story relayed about the woman in the carriage on. I mean, this is a Sunday afternoon and (laughs) business is still open in the in the brothels there. How much free time did these women have? Hmm. You know, that's part of what exactly did they even have free time to to go out and and see things? And and at the same time, there definitely was a lot of control on the madam's part. And because she would take care of uh, she would pay for doctor's bills and take care of things. And, And a lot of times and I came across a case between Molly Adams and um, a prostitute named Pearl Miller. Miller had become sick with a quote, specific disease, and she was treated with by a a local physician. She gave uh, her diamond earrings to Molly Adams and her, her trunk as collateral to, in order to be able to pay 
Molly back. And she somehow ends up in Houston, but in the case, it's between Adams and, and Miller because at some point, Miller decides she wants her trunk back as well as her diamond earrings. And Molly, she doesn't want to give them up. And mm. she's saying, you owe me this and, and that's that, and I'm keeping this. And so the case goes to you know, the county court and in almost all of her cases that I came across, Molly Adams won. And so, you know, poor Pearl Miller <laughs> didn't get her earrings or her trunk back. But uh, mm. this was another instance, though, where I was able to kind of look at what sort of things the prostitutes would carry with them in their trunks. And and actually, that was actually the, the biggest form of collateral that that I came across. And I, I came across another case between a madam and a prostitute where the, the madam had held the trunk as collateral. But I think in, in many instances, you know, a prostitute would get there and say, you know, and, and that's all they had in the world. That's all they had. That's all they had as collateral for anything that, you know, for staying there, for, you know, pulling their weight if they weren't giving the their trunks, you know, and, and the, the madams would hold them. And, and in some sense, that would be very constricting as a, as a way to keep them sort of there at the house as opposed to elsewhere. Yeah, like if they had their valuable possessions in there, any means they could have of, of leaving or or trying some other form of work, they couldn't really because the madam had it. Hmm, interesting. Right. Uh, so also, we were talking about the body register. So that's kind of like the day-to-day operations of the brothel. Is that the idea? No, no. Uh, it's actually in 1889, Waco institutes this body register where okay. the prostitutes have to pay $2.50 each, I think it was every month or quarterly, and then $3.15 if they were a madam, and, and the $3.15 was for every room that they operated. That's really all they did was like, they had the examinations. I never came across the records for the exams that they allegedly had, but hmm. the register was mainly like sort of a license system for mm-hmm. them to be able to to apply their trade within Waco. One of the challenges in the research Amy's talking about is often they would change their name when they went to another place because they're sometimes leaving oh, problems. Like stage name? Yeah, yeah, they would leave problems behind. Okay. In fact, I think one of the unusual things about Molly Adams is she never changed her name. I mean, she right. She kept, right. that was her name. It wasn't a... Earlier I was thinking that was like a, a ledger, and so you could tell things like, who were the regulars and stuff like that? Did they keep any sort of record like that? Of the Johns? No, yeah. they didn't keep any record of the Johns. <laughs> okay, maybe that's a dumb question. Sure, yeah. that would have been the case because that would have been that would have been a gold mine of, of <laughs> social history. But yeah, I mean, I'm. So what I'm what I'm hearing also is that it's a really difficult thing to really know that much about because it was kind of hidden in the shadows, and, and a lot of the records were maybe intentionally the details were left out. Well, we didn't have oral history back then, and even if we did, I, I don't know if they'd. We couldn't get the Johns to talk about it. That's true. Um, and I think Amy makes a great point. One of the reasons Molly Adams is known so well is she lives so long. She lives until forty-one, I think, and her home but burns down in sixty-four. And so there's there's still kind of this remnant of the reservation around in town. Oh, but so the, if I wanted to see where the reservation once was, where would be the best location, you think? 
Well, now if you wanted to to think about how it borders, and Amy made the point when they put in Washington Avenue Bridge, they actually move it, <laughs> move it. Their brand new bridge. They don't want people coming right off their brand new bridge into the reservation. Okay. And so originally, you can think Barron's Branch, which is that little creek. If you're coming off of Washington Avenue Bridge toward downtown, there's that little creek, and longtime Wacoans will know about it because there's a sinkhole that would often emerge right there, and they'd have to close University Park. So they finally got a good bridge over it, but there's a little creek that comes in there. Okay. And so that would be the western border. Uh, the Brazos would be the northern border. The second Street, North Second Street, would be the southern border, and then Washington Avenue would be the southeast border so it's kind of right in that area okay and then it slides down to jefferson when washington avenue bridge comes in but it's a very defined area of town so you know this idea that that if we can just contain it if we can just regulate it's such a progressive idea this is during the progressive <laughs> period you know that wanted efficient everything you know we're, we're going to make this efficient we're going to make it regulated we're going to make it clean mm-hmm. uh, and we're going to have strict borders it's defined with <laughs> so i've been asking lots of questions about what i want to know is there any really interesting tidbits that you came up with when you were researching that are you think would be interesting to people listening going through some of the court cases and whatnot you know i came across a certain famous baylor President Pat Neff in 1907 when a, a group of madams had petitioned the city to try to help this one fellow get a liquor license in the reservation, a whole a list, Molly Adams being the first signature on that petition, had wanted to have this liquor license for this fellow. And Pat Neff, you know, much to his credit, you know, as the county attorney, he, you know, def- he opposed that for sure. <laughs> and he insisted on on getting uh, strict proof of the fellow's claim and whatnot. And so uh, that the the petition sort of fell through. And once the register ended, Waco still managed to to eke out money from the prostitutes by way of you know uh, cyclical arrests that were usually bi monthly or tri monthly. And I. I th- I found that fascinating and you know when I put in my data into my little SPSS database and, and ran some graphs and stuff and and that was that was kind of interesting to see that they did maintain some regulation of it even when you know they allegedly were not. Hmm. So when Camp MacArthur came in and they said you guys got to move was prostitution illegal at that point or were they just telling them that they were just kind of running the people out of that known area it had become if not illegal by poli- by by law it was definitely illegal in any sense of the word of once the reservation started to break up after 1917 you know it's hard to trace the women after that i'm i'm assuming uh, prostitution continued during that period and uh, beyond. But when I look at the city directories, the, the difference between 1916 and who's living on, you know, North or Second Street, as opposed to 1919, where, you know, what used to be a list of names just shows vacant, 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 just go, you can go mm-hmm. down the directory and it's just, and that's kind of, I can't testify whether or not it was still continuing 
I would say it, it did because even when Camp MacArthur came in, venereal disease within that first year uh, was reported as as sort of still existing and cases of gonorrhea and syphilis basically doubled within that year after MacArthur was open. So I don't know if if that was the result of uh, the red light ladies or if it was uh, something else, but we can only imagine that it was probably the, you know, the former. We also know from the arrest records, there's a lot of soldiers arrested in that vicinity during the war years. And and now women would would have been picked up with vagrancy is what they would have called it, right, Amy? Right. That would have been the charge they would have used, yeah. So I'm picturing in my head, you know, they've made, some general has said, you know, we're going to put Camp MacArthur here, told the mayor, go round up all the people that are doing this stuff there, and they get in their paddy wagons and they go and shut down all the brothels and all the Johns are running out with their pants around their ankles. Was it like that at all, or was it just like, hey, you know, it was kind of dwindling anyway, and then they were kind of like, oh, just don't do business here anymore, or keep it quiet, or just disperse, please? Well, that's actually exactly what it was. The first description you gave is pretty <laughs> much what happened. So on Monday, August the 6th, 1917, the Waco chief of police goes into the reservation and let lets them know that Friday at noon that that district would not exist anymore okay as a prostitution district they had to leave town by that Saturday okay so I mean it was that quick it wasn't because it was becoming less busy okay this wasn't a business that they were shutting still down. demand there is still demand but yes, the supply was cut off quickly. Okay. Was there anybody like holding out on that day and they had to arrest them or pull them out of the house forcefully? I don't know that. Okay. I was just grasping at straws with my first description there. <laughs> That's actually a pretty accurate description. <laughs> the, the, the description seemed a little uh, more like a, a very famous musical about a certain uh, chicken ranch in Texas. <laughs> That's where Randy got it. <laughs> Well, excellent. I think I've learned a lot about this uh, interesting area in Waco's history and past. And uh, thank you so much for coming on today and telling us about this. I hope everyone's learned something. Well, thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure to discuss this with you. Yeah, thanks, Amy. To finish out the show, here are some clips from the Texas collection of Wacoans remembering Molly Adams. Pope Massey told me in later years when we became very good friends that he was born in the house that became the chief house of prostitution on North 2nd Street in Waco. He even told that to my mother one time, and he also told her that Molly Adams, who was a small, trim individual, had bought evening dresses that, from his mother because his mother was also a small, trim woman. But the sad thing about Molly Adams is that uh, she died almost in destitution in later years in Waco. And somebody with a poor sense of humor called up Mr. Massey and said, Molly Adams has just died. She'd like for you to be a pallbearer. He said, I'll be very glad to. Well, this same individual called four or five other men in Waco and got very prompt denials of any interest in Molly Adams' death or funeral services. One of them had to go out of town. The other said, I'm sorry, I've been sick and I'm not getting up and about. Mr. Massey told me the story, but it was not a funny story by any means at all. It was a sad story. Here was this woman who had conducted a house of prostitution 
I think it was closed during World War One because Waco had an army camp and the military authorities said there won't be nothing of the kind here. That's how Molly finally ended her life. But he didn't think it was funny at all. He thought it was a tragic decline of a way of life that had been more or less familiar to men in past years. Of all these women who had lived on Second Street, they got him out of the way, except Miss Molly Adams, who has been a part of Waco history, because everybody else left, but she was a madam, and she stayed there on the corner of Second and Jefferson. She lived in this beautiful, great big house. We all called it La Casa Verde, the greenhouse. It was a dark greenhouse. Beautiful home. She kept a beautiful home and all. And my daddy had the grocery store right next to that. Well, they had let her stay because she had a little pool with the sheriff then. Everything quieted down, I suppose. But during the day, I would sneak over there, and they would feed me. She had four young girls there. I never saw anything, any. Body else but those four girls and Miss Molly Adams there. They would uh, cut my hair, which I loved. Sometimes they would even put lipstick on me. And uh, Miss Molly would ask Dad, would uh, he let me go with her downtown? Look, she looked very respectful with this little girl by her hand. And uh, she would always buy me a dress, beautiful, beautiful dresses. She could afford the best. We would go to Singer Brothers, which was on 4th and Austin at the time. It was her favorite store. But the ladies of the night, shall we say, uh, could never come up on, on Austin Avenue. They could come up maybe to 3rd Street, but from then on into downtown, they could not. So Miss Molly would go and she would buy them their clothes their shoes, whatever it was that they needed. And I was there with her, and and I was a very good little girl. So she would buy me whatever dress I wanted her to buy me. You can hear many more sound bites at wacohistory.org. Cross the Brazos and Waco Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos and Waco Thanks for listening to the Waco History Podcast. Like what you heard? Subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes so we can reach more listeners. You can find show notes and info on every episode at wacohistorypodcast.com and more info on Waco's past at wacohistory.org. Our theme music, used with permission, is Cross the Brazos at Waco, performed by the late Billy Walker. For more info on Billy's music, go to billywalker.com. We'll see you next time. time ago, as he dropped the guns that she hated in the muddy Brazos below Cross the Brazos and Waco Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos and Waco I'll walk straight in old San Antonio Then the night came alive with gunfire He knew that at last it'd been found As the ranger's badge showed brightly El bandito lay on the ground Carmela knew he was 
dying That all of her dreams were in vain As she kissed his lips for the last time She heard him whisper again Cross the Brazos and Waco Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos and Waco I'm safe when I reach San Antonio I'm safe when I reach San Antonio 